it is practically impossible to be emotionally connected to an Ikea. And if you are, I would like you to, I don't know, maybe consider some things in your life. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Michael, we don't have a lot of time on this earth. We weren't meant to spend it this way. Human beings were not meant to sit in little cubicles, staring at computer screens all day, filling out useless forms, and listening to eight different bosses drone on about mission statements. Words of wisdom from Peter Gibbons from Office Space. We are back with another episode of Keep It Fictional, brought to you from the office, I guess, of the Port Moody Public Library, maybe a little bit. From Peter and Milton and Michael Bolton to Dilbert, Alice and Wally, the office is indeed a fascinating place with so much potential for comedy and satire, which is, of course, something I love. There's just so many weird, strange, specific things about office. There's like a whole store that you go and get supplies. There's just these weird things that are all designed just for an office. The unspoken rules that govern behaviors in an office. It's just this like weird little ecosystem. Did you know that cubicles, which is really synonymous with the soul-crushing life of an office worker, was originally designed to free the worker, to give you autonomy, to give you space, to let you reconfigure your work, your space, according to your needs. It was actually first called the Action Office 2, designed by Robert Props. And the walls of a cubicle are supposed to be at 120 degrees. But all the companies look at this design as, oh, that's great. You know, that like you can have a little bit of space for the, for the worker and that they can do their work, have a little bit of privacy, but also you can easily get to them if you need to talk to them. But you know, these 120 degrees, it just doesn't quite work. Let's just squish it into a box, make it a 90 degree. That is a lot more space-saving, you know, money-saving. That's much better. And hence the birth of the cubicle. Do you know that the vertical file, which is probably one of my favorite things about the office, which is a very weird thing to be, it was actually mirrors the steel skyscrapers that were cropping up in the 19th century when they try to find a way to house people and to house office workers and that they think, hey, that's a good way to store paper vertically. And the cabinet, also made of steel, was kind of to like figure out a new way to store all these paper files that have been building up as office work became a thing. More of these fun facts that you can find, of course, in books like Cube, A Secret History of the Workplace by Nikhil Saval. If you're ever interested in like how our workplace became the way it is, and of course, these days after two Two years? Has it been two years of people working from home? I don't know what this office is still going to be like, but it's fascinating history of the workplace. So today we have chosen some books inspired by our workplace, maybe, that are set in an office. Well, I 
think we did because you know that every single episode, there's always going to be one very creative interpretation of the theme. So who is it going to be this week? Well, let's find out. We are going to start with Fiona. It was not me. I went with a uh, very basic interpretation of our office theme and went with what I would consider to be an office classic. I went way back to the early 2000s to a book that I love the film adaptation for. And certainly the year it was written colored my experience of it a lot. It is quite dated, but boy, was it fun. I am talking about The Devil Wears Prada by Lauren Weissenberg. This book takes place in the office of a fashion magazine, and it follows the story of Andrea Sachs, who happens to land a job in New, New York with the most famous and powerful fashion editor out there, Miranda Priestley. Now, I only found out after reading this that Miranda Priestley is, in fact, based on a real fashion editor. And the book is, in fact, based on the author's experience working as an assistant to a fashion editor. Uh, so it was a very dishy. And I just went all in and really, really enjoyed that. So part of it, what was dated about it is, is just the whole job search aspect of it. Andy has finished her undergrad. She has been traveling in Europe and she decides that she will move to New York to start pursuing writing. Her dream job is to work at the New Yorker. So she crashes on her friend's Lily's couch and Lily is increasingly showing signs of alcoholism and making poor choices about the people she goes home with. But Andrea decides, you know what? She is a grad student, so this is normal. Uh, it is normal for Lily to be drinking this much and partying this much. Meanwhile, Andrea papers the town with her resume, open to anything in the magazine industry. Well, the only interview she gets is at the Elias Clark building. It's for some fashion rag, but who cares? It is in magazines. Now, I did have a little bit of a flashback to applying to cafes in between my university degrees and that, you know, she's she's kind of going, oh, these seem like kind of red flags. You know, they've looked at my resume. They want to have an immediate interview. And now they're telling me I have the job telling me to start Monday. They're not offering. They're not telling me what it's about. It's just like, great, you are starting in 48 hours. Some red flags are starting to go up. But as she hears everywhere, what a job. Every girl her age would die to be Miranda Priestley's assistant. So Andy is quickly brought into the fashion world. She has to deal with the judgmental looks of the clackers in the building who are Basically, everybody who Andy decides is vapid because she's super judgmental. And it's it's kind of ironic because the idea is that she's this, uh, you know, like sort of country girl and she's really sweet and she's in this world where everybody is so harsh and and mean. And but Andy herself is actually very judgmental, often racist, often classist, often homophobic. So Big warnings for those only in the early 2000s. Could you get away with that is pretty alarming sometimes. Basically, the whole book is anecdotes about the horrible things that Miranda Priestly 
puts Andy through. From changing her mind at the last minute to sending her for six coffee runs in one day because the coffee is too cold by the time that it gets to her, to constantly having to order breakfast from the same restaurant because she doesn't know what time Miranda's going to come into the office. So she has to order it, wait a half an hour, throw it in the garbage and order it again so that it is just hot enough when Miranda arrives into the office. Just continued and escalating anecdotes like these. And of course, she is accompanied by her supervising assistant, Emily, who adores Miranda and will not accept that this is insane what she expects from them. So Andy on the other side has someone saying, just suck it up. You know, she's perfect. you got to do exactly what she wants. So that's, that's pretty much like the structure of it. Andy has a, a, a do good boyfriend who she is ignoring now that she has this, this uh, job that uh, takes all of her attention and they go through some issues. There's also kind of a, a predatory famous author who's older than her and decides that uh, the fact that she can't be with him, you know, is very alluring. Uh, so that that may be a little bit triggering. And all of this sort of drama that goes along with the fashion world and of course the ridiculous and fun outfits are described and and there is a lot of a lot of poking fun at the people in the industry. So it was very fun uh, for me. I, I really enjoy things that are taken from real life. It's that opportunity to get into a place, get into an office where you never, ever want to work, but you're like, but I'm really curious. Please dish. Tell me all about this. And I would definitely recommend it for if, if you uh, enjoyed Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, it kind of had a similar feel of that voyeurism that I really appreciated, maybe with a little bit less of a, a little less of like a critical eye. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. I'm really looking forward to watching the movie again. And you know what? I think I'm going to read the sequels. I just like, I really, really got into it and ended up up caring a lot despite how vapid the whole thing was. So if you are looking for a fun dive into the office, uh, an opportunity to reflect and say, wow, my office life is so much better than that. I'm so grateful. I highly recommend The Devil Wears Prada. Thank you, Fiona. Glad you have fun reading that because that sure does sound like a nightmare office. Well, there is a fun office novel, even if it is a nightmare office. Corinne, what have you got for us today? Well, today, Virginia, I have one of my favorite tropes, an office romance. We're getting back in our time machine and we're going back to the year 1999. The Euro has just launched the big movies. You can go into the theater and see Varsity Blues, Big Daddy, or The Phantom Menace. You turn on the radio and we're all living La Vida Loca because I want it that way. Because we're all all-stars. Vintage year. And in a small Nebraska newspaper, they are finally allowing their employees access to the internet. This turns out to be a mistake. Our main character, Beth Fremont, is a film critic, and she spends most of her time at the office using the email system as her own private instant messenger with her best friend, Jennifer Scribner-Snyder, who is a copy editor. 
they reveal maybe too much information in their emails going back and forth. And despite several warnings from the higher above, they don't seem to realize that their emails are being monitored. That every single message that they send to each other about their dating lives, complaining about their husbands, complaining about various bodily functions, are all being read by Lincoln. Lincoln is 28 years old. He is a perpetual student who has just finished his last grad degree. His only friends are his D&D group, and he's kind of a little bit lost in life. And so when he sees a job posting for an internet security officer, he imagines that he will be like protecting the firewall with code or crushing hackers in his wake. But what he actually ends up doing is what his boss calls email security, which in fact translates into reading everyone's emails and then sending them warnings when they email something inappropriate or non-business related. All alone in the city by himself, Lincoln gets a little bit bored flagging all the inappropriate jokes um, that Bill from Sports is sending to everyone that he finds himself kind of getting into Beth and Jennifer's saga. The more he reads about them, the more he learns about their lives and their interests and their opinions, the more he really feels like he knows them. And specifically, he feels like he really knows Beth really well. Beth is looking for love. She has several disastrous dating encounters. And Lincoln hasn't been in a relationship in eight years when the girl of his dreams broke his heart. And so he feels feelings towards Beth. But how do you introduce yourself to someone that you already know everything about them and everything about their life without seeming like a real creeper? This is I Love an Office Romance to read about. Let me be very specific. Very specific. It never ends well. And yeah, it it is uh, the book Attachments by Rainbow Rowell. Um, she's primarily known as being a YA author, but has written a couple of like adult romancy things. And I <laughs> Once you get over the conceit of the idea that he's kind of a creep, but a well-meaning creep, it's a very enjoyable read. It's very sweet. All of the characters, you just kind of want to give a big hug. You kind of want to take Lincoln and like shake him by the shoulders and say, hey, how about you just go up to her in like the staff room and introduce yourself and maybe stop reading all of her emails like a creep. But of course, that is not what is going to happen because this is a romance and it wouldn't be any fun if anyone just acted like an adult for five minutes. So if you are looking for kind of a very sweet, fun uh, romance, I I love a a book that is written in emails or in letters. And so all of uh, Beth and Jennifer's correspondence, you get to read through all their emails, which is super fun because everyone has a good work friend that they send all their best jokes to. And so you kind of get a little peek into that. And Lincoln, despite his creep tendencies, like is very sweet and he kind of grows and learns, which I really love to see in like a romance hero where they have to be taught a lesson and they grow and evolve because of it. And then a romance is allowed to happen. So yeah, if you're looking for something very sweet and if you really enjoy reading the blog, Ask a Manager, which is the best 
best blog of all time. And if you really enjoy office drama, office gossip, office nonsense, someone putting peanut butter and jam on a cat to teach them how to open doors, like this blog is perfect. And this book will be a lovely pick for you. So that is Attachments by Rainbow Rowell. Thank you, Miss Corrine. Kind of thought you would pick up office romance. Makes sense. It makes sense. Total sense. And it also makes sense as I'm going to take this to a dark side right now. I mean, we've got to like balance it out. It's too much fun around here. Right now. Um, so yeah, so I was really honestly trying to look for a fun, lighthearted, satirical, absurd kind of read. You know, I was really looking for that. But apparently my brain is not interested in fun these days. So I'm just going to come back with a really intriguing read, but like it's still going to be surreal, dark, frightening, and very grim. In other words, a Virginia book. So I have for you The Beautiful Bureaucrat by Helen Phillips. This is a story of Josephine. Josephine has been out of work for almost 18 months now. She and her husband has moved and relocated, hoping for a better life, maybe to start a family, but they can barely make ends meet because they can't find a job. And they know they're going to get evicted soon because they can't pay the rent. And they ended up like subletting and they have to live in the apartments of like other people with other people's stuff in it because they're not allowed to move them. They're not allowed to decorate. It's like, basically boring someone's places. It's been like the worst time of her life and she hates being unemployed. She never wants to be here again. And that's why when a job opportunity comes her way, she takes it, no reservations, and swears she will stick with it. Even give this job is possibly one of the most boring and monotonous type of work there is. She is going to be doing data entry. But anything is better than being unemployed. So she's just going to take a job offered to her. Her office is located in this bleak concrete building that seems to take up the whole block. It seems to go on forever. And you can't even see the end of it. She's assigned to room 9997. That's her office, a windowless office, of course. And one of the many identical looking spaces in the multiple floors of that building. In the office, there's a desk, there's a chair. On the desk, there's a computer. Next to the computer is a tall pile of gray files. Her job, she was told by her supervisor, which she's pretty sure they've never mentioned what their name is. So she doesn't even know their name. But she was told by her supervisor that her job is to do data entry. So basically, you turn on your computer, access the database with a password she was told to memorize, and then take a file, the top of the file, open it up, find the form inside, type in that number on the form to bring up the record from the database, then make sure the names match, make sure there's no typos, and then type in the next two string of gibberish on the form. They're usually this mixture of letters and numbers that makes absolutely no sense. They don't follow any particular pattern. She can't make any sense out of it, but she was just told, just type those in, close the file, put the file aside and move on to the next one. And that's all you have to do. On the form, she noticed that there's like other things after those numbers and, and, and letters. And she's like, well, what are these? And, and her supervisor like, nope, don't worry about it. It's none of your concern. Just move on to the next form. And that's all. That's all she's supposed to do for seven hours in a day. But again, anything's better than not having a job. 
Josephine tried to make something out of this boring workplace. So she thought, you know what, maybe I'll go have lunch outside. So she was outside the building and she was having lunch. And her supervisor walked up to her and said, um, I'm sorry, but we don't eat lunch outside. You're supposed to be in your office. That's where we eat. So if you can just head back, that would be great. And she's like, okay, well, maybe I'll get to know my coworkers. And so she was walking down the hall and she noticed most of the doors are closed and nobody seems to want to chat, even if their doors were open. Everybody was just kind of like doing their own thing. And it's also slightly scary for her to realize that everybody, everybody kind of looks like her in some way. They kind of dress like her. It was just very strange. So she head back into her office. She said, okay, what can I do to make this place a little bit better. So she thought she was opening the drawers and she found, oh, that's like a weird calendar there. She oh, maybe I'll just pin up the calendar. Just the walls look so boring. Let me just pin this calendar up. And it's as if her supervisor was watching her because the minute that pin goes into the wall, the door opens and her supervisor was that, um, we don't do that here because we're, we're going to try to get the offices painted. They're going to come and paint this any day. So let's just keep the walls free for them. But Josephine knows that like this work order to get the offices painted was put in eight years ago. They're not coming to paint this place. So why can't she just put something up? But of course, her supervisor was staring at her, waiting for her to take that calendar off. So she took it off, shoved it back into the, the office and went back to her grave files. And that was kind of her day, day in and day out. And the job is definitely taking a toll on her. And not only that, her home life is also kind of changing. Her husband, Joseph, also has a job, but both of them were somehow told you're not allowed to talk about your job at home. So she can't really vent with her husband. And her husband is also acting a little strange, like her, his behavior is being really erratic. One day she'll come home and he will shower her with affection and attention. But the next day, like she'll be waiting at home, wondering when he's coming home and she would get a phone call and her husband would be like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to come home today. Sorry, um, just don't wait up. And every time she tried to ask, like, but where are you? Why? What are you doing? The phone call is always staticky. She can never quite hear what he's saying. So she can only get half the conversation and, and he never seems to answer her questions, maybe because like he couldn't hear her either. So just she just couldn't figure out and she couldn't help but think like, maybe he's having an affair. Maybe there's something going on. And then one day she went to work, was putting in the numbers, typing in the stuff, checking, make sure that there's no typos. She came across a name on the file, a name that she recognized from somewhere else. And Josephine just needs to know what exactly is she doing here? What is this database? And so she decides to follow the trail of this vaguely familiar name to try to find out what her work actually is. That is The Beautiful Bureaucrat by Helen Phillips. It's a book where I can't quite know how to define in terms of genre. It is like, and I think that's what makes it really intriguing because it's definitely a lot of suspense in it. You're trying to figure out what the database is. And as Josephine also trying to figure out like, what is her job? What is she doing? What is her husband doing? It is set in a somewhat, maybe a dystopian world once you kind of get farther into the book. What exactly is going on? It's a world that is very familiar because we are all, many of us are also familiar with sort of this monotonous drudgery of office work, but yet there's something weird about this, something strange. And 
I think even more kind of soul crushing is that Helen Phillips is really showing like very often we are working, we're coming to this place for seven hours a day, but what is the point of all of this? Like you really feel like you're just this cock in a wheel that you're not really sure what the big picture is. And just like, it just doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense. And for anyone who's trying to start a family like Joseph and Josephine, work is not very accommodating and work doesn't really work when you're trying to build a family. So just going to give a content warning for parents and would-be parents. This may not be a book that you want to tackle. So it is it is a pretty grim book. I'm not going to lie. But if you are interested in looking at this whole idea of work, of office, and maybe getting into some of the, like, sort of the philosophical existential questions about it, if you're looking for a Kafka-esque kind of story, I would highly recommend this. So this is The Beautiful Bureaucrat by Helen Phillips. All right. I am very excited to hear Gabriel's book. Watch, I'm watching you say, I'm very excited to see whether they like it or not, because I love that book. Uh, one of my coworkers, Heather, also really loved that book. So Gabriel, how did you find that book? I chose this week. Perhaps maybe I'm the person who is sort of stretching the idea of what an office book is. Just considering there's definitely office furniture involved and it's definitely a workplace, whether or not it's actually an office maybe depends on your definition of office in sort of like a metaphysical sense. So I chose Horror Store by Grady Hendrix. He has also written uh, a number of other books that have been pretty popular recently. He wrote The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires and The Final Girls Support Group. He's also written a few different movie scripts and a few other things. So he's, uh, I think at, at this point, is a, probably a pretty well-known author. This is pretty, this is very different from the other books that I've read through the last couple of weeks in a good way. I would say in a good way. So have you, audience member, have you ever been to Ikea? Yes? No. Okay. Have you ever worked at an Ikea? Interesting. Have you ever been able to truly leave Ikea behind? So every morning, Orsk employees pile into like this massive big box store to clock in and work these grueling retail shifts, as you might expect working in an Ikea or a Walmart. Um, There's a lot of interesting relationships, interesting interactions with customers, Recently, employees have been arriving to a store that's been partially vandalized. So couches have been defecated on, um, glass has been broken, bathroom stalls have strange graffiti that mentions a beehive, and it seems to be getting worse. It seems to be getting worse to the point that three employees are actually planning to stay overnight and patrol the store to figure out exactly who has been breaking in and wrecking the place Um, because they're supposed to have an inspection tomorrow and everything has to be great. Especially uh, the the manager of the store, Basil is really like really stressed about it. And he knows it's sort of a weird ask, ask some of his employees to kind of stay and pretty much do like a 24 hour shift almost by the end of it, given that they also worked that day, but he plans to pay them. I think it's like, uh, double time and in cash by the end of the night. And so that's a hard bargain really to uh, pass up. Or maybe it would have been a little easier if they knew what was coming. So these three employees, we got Basil, 
the uptight manager who has a lot more empathy than he's given credit for, but it's kind of hard when he speaks like um, a manual to good customer service. So understandably, maybe people get a little frustrated interacting with him. We have Ruth Ann, who's a sweet older woman. She's got an exciting past, had some running with the Hells Angels, considers her family to be the people who work around her, sweetest person you've ever met, has been in jail. The next person would be Amy, who is like a less than enthusiastic employee who's uh, just trying to keep her job. She's definitely someone who never planned to work in retail, but life sometimes takes a different turn. She definitely thinks she's better than everyone there, but at the same time is very dependent on all of them. I, I would say she has a lot of growth by the end of the book. So does, so does Basil, so does everybody. And while they are pulling this extra long shift in the middle of the night, they run into Trinity and Matt, who are two of their other coworkers, who have stayed behind, you know, trying to get big in ghost hunting TV. So, you know, they brought all of their EMF detectors, they got their flashlights, their cameras. Matt knows everything that there is to know about filming ghost hunting TV. And he believes none of it. Apophenia is probably the word of the day. And Trinity is very much like a believer. She is, I think, almost described as like a rave girl is the way that <laughs> the book sort of uh, approaches it. She's got a lot of hype to her, I think. And... They are in a sort of strange, not quite relationship and yeah, hoping to kind of catch a ghost on film. By the end, I would say they do. And Horror Store is really interesting because it's a classic haunted house story in a lot of ways, but it's just got a very unconventional house that's being haunted. Uh, since it is a big box store, it's not really what you think of in terms of haunting. If we look at maybe similar stories that have comparative narratives. Usually you think of something as being like a place that has a lot of emotional connection. It is practically impossible to be emotionally connected to an Ikea. And if you are, I would like you to, I don't know, maybe consider some things in your life because, <laughs> because especially with this, they really drive home the fact that this thing is meant, this is like a maze. This is the labyrinth. You are stuck in here and you will buy something by the end of it. And so, I mean, maybe maybe I can't hold you too accountable if by the end of it, it's like you've made peace with your demons by the time you're walking out that Ikea door. Definitely. I would say that they don't really make peace with their demons in this one. Um, in fact, they maybe want to fight their demons a little bit more. It is a great, it's a great book. One thing for me, so I love horror, but I'm also a baby. And I this was like perfect because it was like right straddling that line where it's like I'm not going to have nightmares like other things that I've engaged with in the past. And it was a foolhardy uh, task, but it was just enough to kind of like give me the little tidbits of horror that I love. Um, you know, you have like old gods that require sacrifices, new philosophies brought to you by corporate overlords, uh, body horror, psychological horror, existential horror, you know, like this little miasma that you can kind of just get your hands on in maybe like a very physical way as you imagine the snot and the uh, other odors that are really, really prevalent in this for some reason. Grady Hendrix is like, you need to smell this story. You need to smell it. So if you're someone who likes really being put into a narrative, I think he's great at making you feel like you're actually there. His writing style is really, I think, what sells a lot of this. There's a lot of humor in it because other than necessary, I guess the fact that you don't usually see ghost stories in this kind of setting of maybe a more modern suburban America in a lot of ways. 
it really is just sort of like a classic story. And so his, I would say his writing style is what really sells it. You have some really amazing visuals in some of it. There's the bathroom wall filled with graffiti of people who can never leave, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And um, so there's no movie version that I could have watched this week yet because Horror Store has a movie coming out. So if you're someone like me who loves a movie and didn't think about The Devil Wears Prada as a potential option, you know, Horror Store will eventually have a movie. And I do have video game recommendations for if you want to find something similar. First one would be Control, which is also set in a strange bureaucratic. um, So also, I should say, if you've played these video games, this is the book for you. Control, set in a strange bureaucratic haunted house. If you know anything about Control, it is the single most Lovecraftian experience I've ever had. I've thought there, there were whispers all around me for a long time after. Great, great, great. Twin Peaks lovers would also love that. Would probably also get a lot out of Horror Star. Uh, the other one would be The Stanley Parable, which is maybe more on the horror comedy side. And all I need to say about that is the description, which is when a simple-minded individual named Stanley discovers that the co-workers in his office have mysteriously vanished, he sets off to find answers. You will play a Stanley. You will not play a Stanley. You will make a choice. You will have your choices taken from you. The game will end. The game will never end. Contradiction follows contradiction. The rules of how games should work are broken and then broken again. You're not here to win. The Stanley Parable is a game that plays you. Horror Store is also kind of a book that reads you. And it looks at the sort of things that you're scared at, scared of, especially when it comes to maybe a corporate America setting. All right. You should read it. Thank you, Gabriel. That was a great description of a great book. And if anyone is interested in sort of the history of horror, especially those like pulpy horror books um, that are out there with the best kind of covers there are, Grady Hendrix has a book called Paperbacks from Hell, and it's all about the history of horror paperbacks. So check that out too. But I'm glad you enjoyed it, Gabriel. That is great. All right. So the last but not least, I think, even though I love horror story, I love the cover because it's like an IKEA catalog. I think the last book from this has the best cover for the day because I am pretty sure we have all found ourselves or our coworkers, our book friends here, doing the exact same thing as the person on Liz's book cover. So Liz, what is your book? Oh, yeah. So um, for today's book, (laughs) I've got There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Sumura. And this has been translated from the Japanese by Polly Barton, uh, who I think is one of the one of the best modern translators of contemporary Japanese works today. It's very accessible. And uh, for those of you who are watching on the video version of our podcast, we have a woman who is face down, face planted on her desk with a computer nearby. And it's it's sort of one of those scenarios where somebody walking by would be like, hey, Liz, are you okay? Or just think, you know what? I'm just going to leave her be and walk on by because I don't think they're in the mood for talking right now. So, you know, not saying that this workplace is like that, but, you know, I'm sure we have all had days like that, whether in our working lives or maybe even our personal lives where sometimes you just need to take a moment for yourself. This book opens up with our meeting an unnamed protagonist 
and she has requested from an employment agency a placement for a job that is A, close to home, so very walkable, and B, requires little to no thinking. So we don't really know much about her other than these are her job requirements. She has moved back home and she wants the so-called easy job, or so it seems. So the agency says, we've got the job for you. And they have placed her in this nondescript building in a cubicle. And her job is to sit at a computer all day and to watch a hidden camera feed of the interior of an author's apartment. Now, this guy is not very interesting. He sits at his computer for most of the day, writing or attempting to write or surfing the internet or watching TV. Not a whole lot going on. Sometimes he leaves, but yet the protagonist still needs to sit there and watch the video and make sure that she's not missing out on anything. So her job is to see if the suspected contraband goods uh, that they believe that he has in his home will be revealed by this particular individual. So at first, not a whole lot going on, but that is her job. It is kind of mind numbing, but it does fit all of her requirements. Now, needless to say, she doesn't stay at this job for very long. And This book kind of goes through her life essentially as a temp in the world of a selection of jobs available in the Japanese market. Some of these are a bit stranger than others, but she still has the same requirement. I want to be fairly close to home and I don't want to exert myself, particularly not by thinking. For example, she ends up writing jingles for a bus company. She creates trivia copyright for little tiny rice cracker packages, like here's the top 10 castles in Japan and a fun fact about each. She puts up posters around a neighborhood and she actually has to knock on people's doors and ask them, is it okay if I put this poster for this thing up? And she also ends up working at a city park. Now, along the way, there's some strange occurrences that start happening to our protagonist. But also along the way, every time she begins to excel at a job and get really good at it and learn the ins and outs of it, she decides to leave. So what is her deal? That is not really quite clear to us as the reader off the bat. And in fact, for a very, very long time. What we do get out of this is that there's some weird jobs out there, but I guess somebody's got to do them. Never really thought much about that. And the other thing is that this person is capable. She is motivated to do a good job when she's in the job. She's punctual. She's friendly. She's efficient. So what's holding her back from wanting to apply herself to have some stability? Why did she move back home and under what circumstances? Why is she so kind of insular, I guess, about what she wants out of her life. What is it that she wants from this job, from any job? If you kind of like sort of a, I don't know, it's been described kind of like a cozy in a way because we just don't know what's going on. Like what is her deal here? But it's very interesting along the way to see how she tries and find out, to find out what 
exactly her deal is, which we certainly don't know. So she doesn't know. How are we supposed to know? If that kind of sounds like an interesting book for you, believe me, it's better than I'm describing it right now. You might want to check out There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job by Kikuko Sumura. Thank you, Liz. That that sounds interesting. We all like laugh at when you were talking about the the writing the weird jingles and and you know writing those little ten facts about castles and things like that. It sounds like kind of like a fun job, actually. Somebody does it. Somebody's got to do it. I, I I don't mind doing that. I don't think maybe I don't know. And one is kind of like a little bit of fun research, right? Kind of like a librarian's work, maybe a little bit. Anyway, well, so now we know that's another opportunity for us for our library science degree. We need to find a different thing. Anyway, well, thank you so much, everyone, for reading a book set in the office. I know that was kind of a weird topic. I I thought, yeah, I can see the note. Everybody's just like, why did she pick that? I don't know either. So thank you for doing that. Um, I hope you all enjoy some of our picks that are set in the office. We hope some of these maybe show you how much, like, uh, I think Fiona said that, yeah, maybe my work is not that bad. <laughs> to like some of these nightmare officers. So um, yeah, so thank you for that. Thank you for tuning in. And just to leave you with it, please don't forget your cover sheet on your TPS report. And I'm just going to go ahead and make sure you have that memo. So thank you, everyone. We will see you next time. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional.